You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, season's greetings, and welcome to the special Christmas edition of the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, and coming up in this week's cracker of a show, the 200-year-old case of the missing French monarch. Also, why doctors on their shift were more likely to be oliguric and at risk of acute kidney injury than their patients, we read a modern fable which has an important message for the management of complex clinical collaborations. And finally, how much beauty is there in beauty sleep? But first, could parking method be used as a cheap indicator to guide trainee doctors into specialties? To find out more about this novel method of career selection, I'm joined by the authors of the paper. Hi all, could you introduce yourselves please? Uh, it's Scott McCain. I'm a core trainee in general surgery. Uh, I'm Geoffrey Campbell. I'm a consultant surgeon and lead clinician for car parking in the Southeastern Trust. <laughs> and I'm Stephen Carter, consultant surgeon in the Southeastern Trust. You're all in the Ulster Hospital. We all work in the Ulster Hospital, uh, which is on the periphery of Belfast. Great. Now, this is kind of a novel theory of career selection. What led you to hypothesize that driving habits could characterize a specialty? Well, on a, on a serious note, we had uh, some concerns, largely anecdotal and not necessarily validated by any, any fact, that uh, some of the current assessment tools used to assess junior doctors as they progress through their specialty perhaps were not as robust as possible. And we wondered if there were any personality-based traits or personal traits that might, in fact, help them uh, and give them better guidance towards their career selection. I see. And, and I suppose it was also uh, stimulated by waiting behind physicians trying to get into the car park, uh, you know, um, as a surgeon, queuing up, waiting for someone to actually access the, the facility was somewhat irritating at times. So did you have a working hypothesis about uh, which specialties would would go in a particular way? Well, I think that's fairly obvious that the, the, the surgeons were um, appeared to us to be much quicker at, at, at gaining entry and being able to use the facility. Now, whether that was a reflection of hand-eye coordination, I'm not sure, but we were just, we, that was our suggestion that the, the surgeons would be much quicker at getting in. I see. And uh, Scott, I believe you're the one that carried out the, the observation, as this was an observational study. Now, how did you do that, and how did you, you minimise the observer effect? Okay. Um, three separate mornings from about quarter past seven to half ten, I stood outside the, the car park in a hooded coat, trying to hide in the hedge so that I wouldn't be seen by any of the approaching consultants. Uh, I was caught out once, but uh, managed to keep a fairly low profile the rest of the time. A novel uh, methodology, skulking in bushes, then? Not uncommon among surgical trainees to try and hide and keep a low profile. So uh, once you did your observation, uh, what did you find? We found that, uh, well, we looked at two things. We looked at the manner of approach to the car park and also the time it took to get in to the car park and park. And we found that with regards to the manner of approach, surgeons were much more prepared for entry to the car park and that they had their card ready either in their hand or in their teeth more commonly. Uh, before when they approached the car park. Um, with regards to the speed of parking, surgeons were much quicker than all the other specialties. 
and the medics were the slowest, with uh, anaesthetists and radiologists falling in between. I see. Now, uh, when you did this, do you think that, that parking is a result of specialty, or do you think that it came beforehand? It's impossible to to know, really. Um, it's, it's difficult to know whether it's a specialty that determines your personality or whether it's the personality that determines your specialty. And it's probably an element of both. I think I think we probably have caught on to something very important here. I think your ability to park a car may may well indicate your aptitude for a, for a certain specialty. Because one of the more common variables that one would worry about is the differences between men and women being able to park cars. And we didn't see that variable in this study. Um, this, this is very much related to specialty rather than, than sex. I see. So, so specialty training overrides sex differences. It seems to, and it, it may well be even the, the preferences or the aptitude for that specialty as, as compared to specialty training. That's yes. a more difficult question to answer. Absolutely. What we would really need to do now is take a, a, a group of medical students who have not as yet chosen their specialty, put them through the car park test, and then in 10 years' time see where they have ended up as a, as a long-term study. Uh, and that would determine whether the specialty adopted their uh, parking habits or whether the parking habits actually were a reflection of the specialty that they would end up in. Provided they were, of course, successful in it. it this, would, this would save the government in these time-constrained uh, health service issues an absolute fortune that would, at one fell stroke, do away with all specialty assessment and training. So you think that uh, you know we should run the a driving test alongside an, an OSCE or something at med school? Absolutely. I think, well, a parking test as opposed to a driving test. Yes. We, we actually feel that people could go for an interview and, and be covertly observed parking their cars and not have to t- attend for the interview. That that makes sense. And uh, time is money after all. No, oh, it would save, it'd save an absolute fortune. As I say, hopefully we, we will see this implemented in the, the near future. Uh, Jeffrey Scott and Stephen, thank you very much for joining me today. Now, Harriet Vickers finds out how medical science is helping unpick a mystery that started in the French Revolution. A paper published in this week's BMJ can lay claim to solving a centuries-old French puzzle. A multidisciplinary team of researchers scrutinised an embalmed head, thought to be that of the French king, Henri IV, to see if science agreed. Co-author Dr Philippe Charlier from the Department of Forensic Medicine and Pathology at the University Hospital Paris, joins me on the line. Can you tell us what happened to the king's body after his death? Just after the the death, so in 1610, the body was embalmed completely. Then it was led like this during many, many years. And in 1793, the body was um, discovered by the revolutionists and it was broken first exposed during three days and after destroyed by a fresh cut to the neck. The willing of the revolutionists was to behead all the king of France, the living one, and also all the past kings. And how, how did the, the head come to be with you? Where, where had it been since 1793? The head was conserved by a, a French historian, Alexandre Lenoir, then probably sold it to uh, a German prince. Then it was conserved from one hand to the other. It uh, finished in the hand of an antiquarian in Montmartre, so in Paris, 
and it was sold for three French francs at the early beginning of the 20th century. Then it finished in the hand of a private collectioner till our um, rediscovery of the aid. They were saying that it was Henri's head, but you wanted to really make sure. We wanted absolutely to be sure because, you know, during the French Revolution, a lot of heads were uh, destroyed, were cut from a lot of mummies belonging to um, people from the French court, from kings, queens, but also from ecclesiastics and from people uh, which were just unborn because they had money. Not only in France, but in all Europe, maybe this head came from another geographical origin, maybe from Egypt, from Peru, or from other sites. So we absolutely wanted to be sure. Mm. So the team that you worked with, you've got people from forensics, genetics, radiology, even perfume development, so really a, a wide range of disciplines. Can you tell us about the different techniques and technologies that you used? The technology we used were, in fact, all the technologies that we currently use for forensic purposes and also at the hospital. So we've got CT, we've got endoscopic examination, microscopy, radiocarbon dating, because this is archaeological item. And also we made uh, an olfaction, so a human olfaction, because we wanted to know if this head was embalmed and with what exactly. Great, so you actually had people smelling the head to, to think about the embalming method. Exactly. We wanted uh, pe- people who are um, really used to, to smell uh, the perfumes, we wanted these people to smell the head in order to know with what kind of molecules, with what kind of plants the head was embalmed. What evidence did you find that made you think the head was Henri's? The radiocarbon dating gave us uh, an age for the head, which uh, was exactly fitting. But not only this, in fact, when we make the superposition of the skull on the head on all the portraits of the French king, it uh, it was fitting really perfectly. And also we found some uh, scars and some uh, skin lesions that were very particular to the, the French king. For example, the scar of an old tentative of assassination, and also a little nevus that was present on one face of the nose. Also, all the hairs were red with some white <laughs> one. All the physical characteristics of the of the king. Mm. And, you, and you managed to find decapitation marks as well, is that right? Exactly. It's relative to the decapitation of the post-mortem one by the revolutionist in the Basilica of Saint-Denis a long time after. You said earlier that you have a real mixture of embalmed heads from all over France and all over the world, in fact. Was the nature of the embalming able to offer any clues as to whether or not the head was Henri's? Henri IV uh, wanted to be embalmed um, according to the Italian art of doing it. The skull was not opened, and this is very particular in Saint-Denis, where all the other heads were cut, all the organs were taken away, and inside uh, there were a lot of um, spices and something smelling very good in place of all the organs. And the, the other specificity of embalming for Henri IV was the presence of carbon on the neck, for example. We still can see it. Carbon was present here in order to absorb all the bal odors and also in order to absorb the humidity. This is the reason why the head is so not fresh but so perfect, quite perfect for us. 
What do you plan to do with the head now you've confirmed it does belong to Henri IV? We would like to give uh, a grave to to this aid because the place of uh, the mummified aid, if it belongs to a man, if it belongs to the king, it's a grave. So this head it should be placed in the next few months, uh, just after mass in the Basilica of Saint Denis. For I hope uh, an eternal rest. Fantastic. Well, yes. Thanks very much for for telling us about that. Thanks to you. And if you look online, there are some rather gory pictures to go with that paper. Now, it may have been some time since a lot of you were junior doctors doing around in ITU, but you may remember it as a rather dry experience. Well, my next guest, Anthony Solomon from University College London, certainly thought so, and has published a paper looking into that, specifically urine output in junior doctors as compared to their patients. So, Anthony, what prompted you to do this research in the first place? Well, it was really born out of uh, long on-call shifts as a general medical registrar in which uh, you rarely have time to turn around, let alone go and have a drink or have something to eat. And at the end of one of those 12 or 14-hour shifts, I realised that I hadn't uh, needed to go to the bathroom all day. And I was discussing that with one of my consultants at uh, St George's, uh, Tony Rahman. He suggested doing this study. I mean, there's been, as you say in your paper, studies looking at uh, this in patients in intensive care. Yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot of data on urine output in patients and, and, and how it affects or is associated with mortality. So that people who have oliguria in patients on general intensive care wards who have oliguria have a much higher mortality than, than those who don't. Uh, so we wanted to compare the urine output in intensive care patients with the doctors who look after them. So obviously, we don't want uh, doctors dropping dead on the ward. So, uh, what did you do? Well, we recruited all of the junior intensive care doctors and the uh, general intensive care unit at St George's Hospital and asked them to do a, a measured urine collection uh, for the period in which they are on shift, every day they are on shift, for about a month, and compared that in a case control study with the patient's for whom they were responsible on that day. Sure, so you got everyone to pee in a bottle. How, uh, how did you get them to do that's that? That's right, that's right. Well, we, we um, obtained the cooperation of the cleaning staff at St George's and uh, had them agree that they wouldn't clear away some plastic measuring jugs that we'd leave in the bathroom. Uh, and uh, people emptied their bladder when they arrived at work, and then each subsequent time they needed to go to the toilet, they would measure the urine into a, a one-litre plastic measuring jug. So it was good compliance. Excellent compliance. Yeah, most all, all of the junior doctors wanted to be involved, and it was it was only on a day to day basis the odd occasion where people forgot to uh, to collect one or more voids that they were unable to participate in the study for that day. Sure. So what did you find? Well, it, it was interesting actually. Junior doctors were twice as likely as the patients they looked after to have oliguria on any given shift, and when we looked at it on a uh, dose-response relationship, if you like, for each additional one milligram per kilogram per hour output, the odds ratio for being a doctor rather than a patient was 0.27, again suggesting that doctors had lower urine output than their patients. So going by the previous studies that you've uh, quoted there, it's amazing no one did die on your shift. Mortality was astonishingly low amongst the doctor group, and, and we, in the paper we've attributed that to the tremendous um, physiological attributes of, of the doctors in our, on our ward. Superhuman. Superhuman, you, you could say that. Obviously, we've got a clear and present danger here. What are you doing on the ward to try and stop it? Well, we've uh, put in an application to our 
uh, chief executive uh, at uh, at UCL to have mandatory drinks breaks every 15 minutes uh, with a, a, a range of beverages to, to cater to all tastes. Uh, and we've also asked the nursing staff to, to monitor our urine output in the way that uh, patients' urine output is monitored. Seems sensible. And now that you've uh, looked at urine output, are you looking at anything else to make sure that doctors are safe in work? We, we have some early plans to, to compare caloric intake between doctors and patients uh, in, in a similar setting and, and try and work out whether there are any differences there that need also to be addressed. But uh, that's a work in progress. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing that. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. And if you're worried that you might be suffering from dehydration on your ward, you can read more about Anthony's study online on bmj.com. Next. Research collaboration is undoubtedly a good thing, but it can be a tough job. We have a fairy tale for all the researchers out there. Pie sharing in complex clinical collaborations. A piece of cake? By KT Budding and colleagues from the Department of Surgery, University Medical Centre Groningen, the Netherlands. A little red hen lived in a university hospital where she took care of the sick animals in the different wards. She did this under the overseeing eye of her wise and learned mentors. There was the cow, who had a degree from a prestigious overseas university. There was the pig, who led mergers of several high-standing hospitals in the country. And there was the sheep, who had an outstanding treatment record with almost no animal morbidity and mortality. One day, the little red hen thought... Why don't I see if I can use my scarce free hours at the end of the day and make an excellent pie? Not only will this pie add to the gastronomic knowledge, it could be that the sick animals will benefit from this pie in the long run. So the little red hen ran her idea past her mentors. Great idea, said the cow. I will supply the milk and the butter. Of course I would like a piece of the pie when it's baked. Excellent said the pig. I happen to know the editor of a prestigious cookbook. I expect a piece of the pie once it's finished. Good thinking, said the sheep. My laboratory will provide the necessary utensils. Just make sure I get a share of the pie. The little red hen wasted no time. Every day, after taking care of the sick animals, she spent the last few hours of daylight planning the pie. She took classes in pie-making wrote pie-making protocols, and even obtained approval from an institutional pie review board. After a few months, all preparations were in place. The little red hen first went to the cow and asked for the milk and butter. I have the milk and butter for you. However, I heard that the sheep will also have a part of the pie. I want you to make sure that my piece of the pie is larger than that of the sheep. The little red hen continued to the pig. Hold on, said the pig. I have submitted a grant application for possibly an even bigger pie, so I cannot actively cooperate any longer on the current pie. However, if you do bake it, don't forget to give me a piece. Little Red Hen then visited the sheep. The sheep was abroad for a conference on animal well-being with an extended post-conference tour, and his laboratory had received no instructions to provide any utensils. Little Red Hen went to work. She tested her own recipes made do with her limited utensils and fluttered between different departments to keep everybody satisfied. Finally, after many long hours and many failed pies, an acceptable pie came out of the oven. 
Overjoyed, the little red hen called together her mentors to share the news. Welcome everyone, said the cow. I would like to present the outstanding result of our cooperation. He then took half of the pie and left the room. The pig was next. Excellent work, little red hen. He cut himself a sizeable piece of the pie and left the room. The sheep stepped forward. What a feat of culinary craftsmanship did we achieve. Congratulations on your first pie. He cut a small piece of the pie and took the rest. The little red hen sat in the conference room and stared at the small piece of pie that remained. Although happy to have baked her first pie and to have contributed to the gastronomic knowledge, she was left with an inexplicable feeling of disappointment. It took quite some time before the little red hen attempted to bake another pie. And finally, something that you may be missing over Christmas is your beauty sleep. But how much does lack of sleep affect your appearance? On the phone with me is Jan Axelsson, who has published some research on the matter. Jan, what made you want to look at this in the first place? Well, there, there are several things uh, that made me do carry out the study. The first was actually my daughter who once asked me when she was watching the film The Sleeping Beauty, asking me if it was really sleep that made her so beautiful. And as a researcher, I mean, I couldn't tell her, I have to tell her the truth. And there was no science behind it, so I had to carry out the study myself. And there are also other reasons. It's because um, I know people who look very alert, or one person who looks very alert has been to the doctor many, many times, and she has severe diseases. But the doctors refuse to believe she's really sick because she actually looks so healthy and alert. And another one is that all of these myths and beliefs that are ingrained in our culture, like beauty sleep, exist in several languages, for example. And it's our, I mean, it's a scientist's responsibility to check, are they true and which are true and which are not? Because there are lots of these beliefs which are myths and they are not true. And the last point is, of course, we want to do some fun things once in a while as well. So you decided to look at this. How did you construct your study? Uh, we did, what we did was that we took uh, 23 participants and then we photographed them on two occasions, once after normal sleep and when they've been awake for a few hours, and once after they've been awake for an extension of 24 hours. So we didn't allow them for one night's sleep. And then we took photographs. And then we let other people judge those photographs with respect to how attractive they were, how healthy they looked, and how tired they looked. So did people see them before and after, or was this a, a random selection? Uh, well, everything was carried out in a balanced order. So, I mean, the subjects went through the conditions in a balanced order. Uh, the photographs were judged in a balanced order between conditions and so on. And who did you get to do the judging? Uh, it's, it's random people, like uh, mostly it's students, I would say. So once you collated all your data, what did you find? Uh, what we did find was uh, obviously that you look more tired. But there were no, I mean, there's no scientific evidence of that before, but that's what we expected. And we also found effects on that they look 
less healthy or more sick, and also that you look less attractive uh, after sleep deprivation. You said this research was fun to do, but there are some serious implications. You've already mentioned the the woman whose doctor didn't necessarily believe how ill she was because of the way she looked. What are some of the wider implications of your research? Today we know loads of the negative effects of sleeping bad or sleeping poorly is because it has so many physiological effects that increases the risk for cardiovascular problems, for developing diabetes, depression, and develop infections and so on. But I know young people, they don't really believe in I mean, they, it, it, it's sometimes in the future. Now we show that the acute effects are quite drastic. I mean, you look less healthy. It looks is quite important for young people. So this is one of the arguments that could make people choose to prioritize sleep a little bit more. Another aspect is also why not sleep on it rather than spending loads of money on the beauty treatments are expensive and costly, and this is a multi-billion dollar industry. So have you got any further research to do, perhaps hiding peas under your research subjects' mattresses? <laughs> we have actually thought about that one, but... Uh, that's quite uh, in an early stage, I would say. What we're doing at the moment, we are uh, replicating our data because in this study, we didn't allow people to have sleep for 31 hours, which is not very common in society. So now we're collecting data on people with uh, a little bit less sleep than normal for a few days. And another study, what we're doing now, which we have data on the way is, what is it in the face? Which characteristics makes you look less more tired? Well, we'll look forward to reading that. Jan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. So, that's it for the Christmas podcast. We'll be back just before the new year with a roundup of what's happened in the world of medicine in 2010. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.